welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, where you'll hear advice from experienced safety leaders on how to protect your people and business. I'm Peter Steinfeld. Today, I'm talking with clinical psychologist and behavioral scientist Steve Cremando. As founder and principal of behavioral science applications, Steve helps organizations up-level their emergency and risk management by planning for the most unpredictable factor in every crisis, human behavior. We talk about how to predict behavioral patterns, reduce panic, and adapt workplace programs accordingly. Let's listen in. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Peter. Looking forward to our discussions. I am as well. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Now, for those who may not be aware of the connection, how does behavioral science impact or perhaps influence employee safety? Well, safety is a behavior. Everything that we look at in terms of safety does involve usually a two-part equation. There are safety things, different apparatus, equipment and such to make our workplace safe. And there's safety behavior to things that our people, both our employees or customers, clients, the things they're doing, which is behavior. So human behavior is very much at the heart of almost every safety endeavor in one way or another. And it seems to me that there's just a tremendous spectrum when it comes to behavior. And we all tend to wear our own glasses or lenses through which we view the world. And we tend to project that on other people. And that's got to be one of the most difficult things about what you do is making sure that you help people understand you got to take off your lenses and put that other person's lenses on and see how they view the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many different filters. There's cultural filters, filters of people's age, there's filter of their prior experience. If you've been through one sort of situation or another, it certainly can affect your perception of, of risk or safety going forward. Really, the heart of what I do and folks who do my kind of work is to help leaders in different sorts of organizations make accurate behavioral assumptions. Are they really thinking about this right through, as you mentioned, the variety of different lenses? And then complicate it by thinking about how people through those different lenses view such a wide range of different safety concerns. Yeah, that's got to be tough for any leader to have to stop and think, okay, here's the variable I'm thinking about. Now it's becoming exponentially more difficult based on all these different lenses that people have and what they bring to the situation. So with that in mind, can you maybe give us an example of a crisis that was caused or maybe exacerbated by mismanagement or misunderstanding of human behavior? I give you one that's always stood out to me in my work over the years was saying an organization in the Northeast that was a, a bioscience sort of lab, you know, the kind of medical lab that does those tests that your doctor orders and you know, you go get your blood drawn and so forth. This organization on a pretty typical day of work had a relatively minor safety issue. They had a, a kind of a failure or a power outage of a ventilation system of these kind of vents over a laboratory bench where people were working on different medical samples. And as that system, those fans stopped, it built up some of these gases in the area that the team, you know, the employees were working with to process actually different frozen tissue samples. And unless you had some sort of pre-existing maybe respiratory condition, you probably wouldn't have noticed this at all. But for some people who maybe had asthma or other conditions, they started coughing or sneezing or feeling, you know, not great about it and quickly said to people, hey, hey, look, the ventilator's not working. We're being exposed to these gases. Let's get out of here. And they told their leaders and they evacuated that lab. They got everybody outside. And in fact, it's a fairly robust kind of hazardous material response. People from the county hazmat team came and did testing. And these are folks showing up in those big rubber kind of moon suits that they do for hazardous material situations. 
And just the employee population gathered out on the lawn watching, you know, these people come into their building in their moon suits with all their, their big equipment and such, uh, really put a fear in them that something very serious had happened. And in fact, for one or two people who had really serious pre-existing asthma that was exacerbated by this, they ended up having to go to the hospital just to get checked out. Well, maybe an hour or so into this situation, the folks from the environmental agency said, it's all clear, your ventilator's working, the gas wasn't anything terrible, there's really no hazard, y'all can go back to work if, if you like. And the vast majority of people on that lawn said, oh, no, we don't. I'm not going back in there. You know, the organization or these people are just telling us this because they want us to get back in there and do our thing. But I don't feel safe. We just saw two of our colleagues get whisked away to the hospital. It can't be, you know, this can't be good. Most of the shift, the day shift, refused to go back to work. In the meantime, they were on the phones calling their colleagues on the evening shift saying, hey, do you know what happened? You might not want to come in because this terrible thing happened at work today. And they're telling us it's fine to go back in, but we don't feel good about that. So we're going home. Uh, you might want to do the same. And the majority of the night shift or evening shift didn't come in. And a lot of people didn't show up the next day for work either. Now, but think about this. These are medical samples. These are tests that people are waiting for to see, do I have a terrible disease? Is there something wrong with my child? You know, what's going on? And those samples do not have a, lo a long shelf life. They go bad. This organization, for weeks, struggled to convince people to come in, to stay in the job. And in fact, a lot of them who showed up started to develop these kind of almost imagined symptoms. One that was really classic was people felt itchy and they would scratch and they would look at their arm and then their arm was red and they would run down to the nurse and say, look, I'm having a rash from the gas. It's still here. And the nurse would say, that's from you scratching. It's not from the rash. The, the gas doesn't cause any sort of rash. The bottom line on this story, though, which is so significant, is because of the, the people, the workforce not showing up, people being out, people not being focused, people having a lot more water cooler talk time about their concerns, started to lose a few of their really, really large clients. And to such a degree, this lab was actually out of business in the next 18 months. It had been wow. there for decades. It was actually out of business in the next year and a half because they lost so much substantial business related to this overt sort of behavioral reaction of the workforce around something that was otherwise a really innocuous sort of event. So when we don't get human behavior right, it could leave even our best plans to be ineffective, to be inappropriate, that maybe we over or underreact to a situation. And in some instances, dangerous, dangerous to other people, dangerous to the business. And that was a really, to me, it always stuck with me as such a graphic example of how this little thing magnified, as you said, through the lens of the individual's perception and their behavior became literally catastrophic to the organization when it in fact was not a catastrophic event in any way. Well, that's a fantastic setup to show just how important this stuff is. So I'm a huge fan of postmortem analysis and lessons learned so you don't have to make the same mistakes someone else did. So what could they have done differently in that situation? Well, you know, the first thing they could have done is really start to recognize the level of fear that people had. You know, one thing we say to leaders is the most, the more frightening a situation is to, to people, the more leaders have to lead with empathy, which means in very simple terms, as you're making statements to people, you start with, you lead with an empathic statement. Like we realize this is really a frightening situation for many people. 
let's tell you about what it is, tell you about what it isn't, discuss why we think it's safe to go back to work and what safety measures are in place and what you could do if you have concerns. But you start by acknowledging what it is really, how it's really affecting people. You don't minimize that in any way or ignore it and simply say, it's all clear. The environmental folks told us we can get back in there. Let's go, guys. That, again, can be perceived as anything from just being tone deaf to the situation to uh, actually a cover-up in which you would be, obviously, the folks would, would react much more strongly. So there's a number of different steps, and some of them the organization started to take, but take too late. For example, because so many people were itching and scratching, they actually brought a dermatologist in to work for a week or so in the nursing office there just to reassure people and check if they came down with this kind of rash that it had nothing to do with the gas. But also by that point, employees started to feel, you know what, the company's paying this doctor to just tell us these things because they brought the doc in after we were all so itchy. No one started to talk to us before the fact or reassure us about our safety until we started to protest, until we started to have reactions. So there's a number of different things that, that organizations can do, and it starts with transparency, and it starts with honesty, and it starts with a willingness to kind of acknowledge the human element that even though technically this may be safe, emotionally it may not feel safe to people. So it's almost like organizations need to inoculate themselves against what, I don't want to say this in a pejorative way, but they need to inoculate themselves against the mind virus that is just natural among the human condition. You know, it's so interesting that you use that term mind virus because the technical scientific term for this is mass sociogenic illness, which in previous generations had been referred to as something like epidemic hysteria. Mm. And that's how uh, an idea can sweep through uh, an organization. It can sweep through a school system, through a business, through a community, and almost have a contagious effect of fear from person to person to person. And it can result in not only the fear, but people starting to develop physical symptoms around this. If you, again, you're, you're hearing someone else near you cough, it's almost a trigger to, you know, make us clear our throat and cough. When someone else is saying, I'm feeling terribly itchy all over, where does our mind go? And we start a little itch and a little scratch too. So there is a natural kind of psychological contagion and that can get out of control very quickly and it could grow exponentially. And sometimes you hear about school systems or businesses closed for what are deemed as mystery illnesses because they were never able to find a physical or a medical explanation for what caused people to have these symptoms or reactions. And the scientific term here we use is that they're psychogenic. They are not psychosomatic. It's not a, it's not a, person who's imagining or who's a hypochondriac. It's someone who's actually having the symptoms, but they are stress-induced. So real quick example, you may know, I may know, you know, our listeners may know someone who, when they get very anxious, they get hives. They're not imagining they have hives. You could look at that and you could see these raised red welts on a person's arms or legs. It's not imaginary. We see them, they see them, but they're stress-induced and they're exacerbated by stress but there's nothing else making the person sick. It's not like they got poison ivy, they touch something and there's this rash. The rash is caused by stress. It's caused by a psychological and emotional state. So this can be passed along, believe it or not, from person to person, and it can completely shut down a business 
if that's the contagion, psychological contagion, as opposed to a viral contagion or a bacterial contagion. So this is a lot to deal with. How can organizations prepare their plans, their policies and procedures to account for the behavioral component of a crisis? Because if you line up 10 people in a room, inside they are just as different as they are on the outside. And that's really hard to understand and come up with a good plan for. Yeah, so one, it requires a more mature organization that the leadership has done all the basic things they need to do and safety and security and all their compliance issues. And they've done that. And then they're thinking, how do we really make sure that our plans, policies, procedures are going to hold up under a real event? And that requires adding in a layer of what we're going to call behaviorally informed or psychologically informed safety and emergency management. Thinking about like when the fire alarm goes off, we thought about getting people out of the building safely or some other sort of crisis. We know the mechanical sort of procedural things we could do. How do we start to become more mature and more sophisticated in our plan by anticipating what people are likely to do or not do? Really, their behavior under this unique sort of stress because we may not be making the right assumptions. And one of the things we do, we think about and, and help people with organizations is the idea that does that behavioral reality about how people are likely to conduct themselves Does it saturate plans, policies, procedures? And are you actually replicating that or representing that accurately in exercises? Because honestly, people do not rise to the occasion under stress. They fall to their training, what they've repeated, what they've been prompted to do. That's why even as a little kid, you do fire drills and such in school with such frequency so that it becomes automated. So when you hear this, the fire bell, you're not thinking as a kid, hmm, is this really a fire? No, you know that line up in single file or march out to the playground and do those things. And today in school, of course, kids are planning and practicing for other sorts of risks, unfortunately, including things like active shooters. But you want the response to be automatic. So with leaders and organizations, it's even important that they're testing their assumptions accurately in exercises so that they are behaviorally real and they're on point. One of the things we think about is the behavioral response, for example, to fire, flood, and earthquake is nothing like the behavioral response to a shooting incident. And it's nothing like the behavioral response to a disease outbreak. These are very different. And it's very important that leaders in the field do not cast sort of a broad brush or a one-size-fits-all thought process that like, hey, during emergencies, people act like this. You know, one of the most common, for example, is people sometimes make the assumption leaders, oh, there's likely to be panic. Panic is actually very unlikely in most disaster and emergency situations. And we know what conditions will breed panic. Primarily, if the scenario, the situation, has elements of perceived limited opportunity for escape, or perceived limited availability of critical supplies. People think they're going to run out of bread, milk, and eggs during a storm. So the night before the storm, the line goes around the grocery store to get that stuff. They hear storms coming in and the line is out to the highway at the gas station to fill someone's uh, gas cans for their generators, things like that. Give you a really, really powerful example of this. Uh, Back in August 2005, a large religious pilgrimage crossing a bridge in Baghdad, someone on this crowded bridge yells out, 
There's a suicide bomber on the bridge. Sees wires hanging from someone's backpack. In the stampede to get off the bridge, 965 people are killed. There was never a bomb. There was never a bomber. Perception of limited opportunity for escape. You've seen this at concerts. You see this at soccer matches in Europe and Latin America. We see this when there is the perception of limited opportunity for escape or limited availability of critical supplies that could be during a disease outbreak or whatever. Those things trigger panic. So if we're thinking as a leader, okay, how do we ready our workforce for this scenario? One of the questions we may ask is, hey, is panic possible in this scenario? And what could we do to suppress panic if it is a factor? But we shouldn't assume panic's going to be part of every emergency response because it's just not going to be. So it is, as you said earlier, very different, complicated through the lens of the individual, their experience, their culture, really the things that make them themselves, then multiplied by the complexity of these different scenarios and the need for us not to have one-size-fits-all models to just assume people are going to follow the plan or do what we expect them to do you know, during a crisis. How do you go about interjecting these into your training? Do you do the exercise first and then see what kind of behavior manifests itself and then you start to address it? We actually know from the behavioral sciences have had enough case examples of different emergencies and crises that we could look at the research, look at the literature and say, hey, listen, in these different events, these are the kind of things we're likely to see. So I'll give you a really powerful example of this, right? When we have emergencies that have bookends, and what I mean by bookends is it's very clear to everyone when it starts, when it stops, and if you're in or out of the affected area, we know we get one sort of like emotional behavioral reaction. We get a really high fear reaction. We get the likelihood of a traumatic stress sort of response to these sort of things. It tends to be very sudden, very acute, and very short in its duration. And it kind of guides people. When we have threats that are invisible, and this could be the crash of the rail tanker carrying gas in the community. This could be the example I gave earlier of the invisible leak in the laboratory. This could be something that's accidental. It could be something that's terroristic in nature. But when we can't see, smell, hear, or taste the threat, it changes the whole dynamic. The reaction is primarily somatic, like that itching or those hives or those reactions. There's a very high chance of that. We call that psychological contagion or that mass sociogenic illness spreading from person to person. And it tends to be much more chronic that the emotional reaction lasts for months or longer, not just for the hours and days. So here's the example very quickly, kind of a two-prong example. March of 1995, there's the sarin nerve gas attack in the Tokyo subway, and an apocalyptic sort of group experimenting in the run-up to Y2K is messing around with these hazardous substances, and they're testing it. They test it on the subway in the morning of a, a rush hour commute in Tokyo. 12 people are killed by this nerve gas, but thousands are sickened. But here's the important point for us. In the response in the community to this, the event produced a four to one ratio of psychological casualties to medical casualties. And what this means in plain language is, for every one person who runs to the hospital emergency department or to EMS, complaining of gas exposure symptoms, or times that number also show up complaining of the exact same symptoms, but have never been anywhere near the gas at all all psychogenic. Then the classic case of this, to just illustrate its power, 
accidental release of uh, cesium-137, a radiation event in Guayana, Brazil, in September of 1987, resulted in a 500-to-1 ratio of psychological casualties to emotional casualties. And this, the government there had to open the Olympic soccer stadium as a radiation screening point for people from the community to show up. In the first week of operation, 112,000 people show up to be screened. Out of the first 60,000 people, a little less than 10%, 5,000 have the signs and symptoms of acute radiation sickness. Not a single person had been exposed. Not wow. one. That completely overwhelmed that community. That's a good-sized city. It's a mid-sized city. Overwhelmed their entire ability for their hospital system, their law enforcement system. It crippled that city purely psychological. So that kind of event at the business level, we could say, oh, to inform your plans, policies, your exercises, we don't have to run the exercise first to see how your, your people behave. We're going to model it on what we know, what we've learned through decades of experience to, see, to give you a heads up, at least, about how your people are likely to react to maybe a novel or very unusual sort of crisis. And as I said earlier, it looks nothing like a fire, flood, or earthquake. It's very idiosyncratic to that kind of risk. And we've learned that over time that we can help you apply to plans, policies, even exercises. I think one of the biggest takeaways I'm getting from this is that you should view an incident not, it's almost like the, the tip of an iceberg. The catalyst is just the tip, but there could be a massive rest of that iceberg underneath the water that you're not even seeing. And you really have to start thinking about it and considering that. Yeah, and some of the uh, ways the iceberg manifests itself are very, very clear. Sometimes people are telling you about their fear and I don't want to come back to work or I don't trust this or that. And sometimes it's really not over and it's that they're not sleeping well because they're fearful and that starts to erode their performance and safety on the job, that they are much more tense now and that's affecting safety and performance, that they're distrustful and it starts to erode morale and cohesion in the organization. So there are places where, you know, maybe some of that stuff that's below the waterline is at least closer to the top where leaders could see that part of the iceberg. But there's parts that are a lot psychologically deeper, way down that you may not be able to detect. And some of that could even surface months later as kind of stress-related illnesses that end up with workers' compensation issues or people being out. It can really follow an organization for a very long time. Is it important anytime you have an incident, no matter how big or small, to always have a, a process where at the end people know who to go to speak to? It could have been a fire drill, but you never know. Someone could have been really freaked out by it. Where that process starts best is not in response to a reactive to an incident. If from day one in the onboarding process, there's information in orientation that says, hey, listen, when there are any sort of crises in the community or the workplace, these are the resources available. This is how you report it. This is how you seek help. This is how you do this. People's nature in crisis conditions is actually to harden their defenses. It's kind of to circle their wagons. And if they're unfamiliar with those resources, they're unlikely to accept them if they're just hearing about them for the first time. Even in large-scale disasters, there's a few things we know psychologically, and that's that most people do not seek emotional support, and most people actually reject it when it's offered to them. So the time to introduce that to the workforce is not in the wake of an incident, big or small. It's day one, 
and continuously throughout their employment that they know this is part of how we care for our people. Yeah, it's got to be part of the system, not just a one-time yeah. response. Uh, yeah, part of the culture, part of the organizational culture. Well, what emerging trends or perhaps research in behavioral science can you share that will help our audience keep their people and business safe? Well, I'll tell you, the one that is on the top of my list right now, and it's just a really complex list because we have a lot going on. I mean, you know, we all sadly know that uh, 2022 was a very significant year for mass shootings and violence. So a lot of organizations, schools and committees have been focused on violence prevention and things like active shooters. And that's still very, very high up there. And for me and for lots of people concerned with behavior, but for me, it's something I mentioned a few moments ago, which is around climate change. And believe it or not, there's a very substantial body of research that kind of like in many ways, just almost central to our theme today here, Peter, where the behavioral piece for many organizations sometimes can seem like an afterthought where there's a lot of discussion right now about the physical manifestations of climate change, especially of heat, but there's very substantial behavioral changes. And one of the things we know, it actually decreases safety. People have more accidents on the job when we're in times of extreme heat. There are a range of, of course, extreme heat physical risks from heat stroke to heat stress, but there's all these behavioral consequences that also include things like problems with concentration and memory, increased hostility between people, an increase in aggression. There's an increase for people who have pre-existing mental health conditions for those to be exacerbated by heat. And I want you to think about this for a moment. I think this is so important to our discussion. Pre-pandemic, if we were to dial back to like March of 2020, the national prevalence of mental illness was about one in five adults in the U.S. It was 18.6%. Today, in the immediate post-pandemic era, it has jumped to one in four. It is 26.4%. So you have to think about that. That's not just my workplace. That's my family, it's my, my neighborhood, my community. It is everywhere I go, that prevalence of people struggling with their mental wellness has jumped up substantially. And in such a substantial way, we know right now there's an increased gap between people who are seeking, who may need mental health care, and who are actually able to access and get it. So there's a lot of people in that lurch who are struggling. And heat can be one of the things that very much exacerbates uh, and contributes to that stress. Real quick example, great team of researchers out of Boston University last year published a great study in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, demonstrating this direct linear increase in the number uh, uh, in heat and temperature and the number of psychiatric emergencies in the community on any given day. So people for new reasons or pre-existing conditions are under a much heavier psychological load during extreme heat. This summer, we are in a period of time of record heat all around the world parts of the U.S. and the ocean temperatures on the land. So regardless of an individual's feelings or thought about climate change, is it real? Why is it happening? How much is human contribution? You could just look at this as a physics equation. As temperature goes up, it changes human behavior. You can assign your own thinking to if and why it's happening, but look at the thermometer and understand as that creeps up, there's psychological and behavioral implications as well. 
So one of the things I'm thinking about, I mentioned earlier in our conversation is with our clients and all of those, we can share this message. We promote this idea of behaviorally informed safety and emergency planning. Now, are you thinking about looking through the lens, as you, you asked, of, about what human behavior can look like across a range of different event types and through these people's unique lenses? And beyond that, we're adding this thought now about climate-informed behavioral health and behavioral issues. Or are you thinking about, hmm, we're concerned about the employee, the safety and, and security of our workforce. How does that change related to climate? How does it change related to the temperature or other things to do with this? What should we know? Because as I said earlier, living where I am in the Northeast, we've caught a lot of the smoke coming out of the Canadian wildfires this summer. We have, in my region, uh, being maybe 30 miles outside of New York City, we had that smoke return to us this week and experts told us it wasn't from the Canadian wildfires in Ontario or Quebec. It was from Canadian wildfires in British Columbia and Alberta, completely on the other side of the country. Wow. And it is changing our sunset. And we see the haze day and night. And we could smell it and you could taste it. And there is good research that wildfire smoke affects mental health. So these are very complex things, but they're things we're all having to think about because if any one of our participants or listeners at the moment is someone tasked with safety and security, it's another complicating variable. So there is the behavioral piece, which complicates it anyway. And then there's the behavioral piece that changes perhaps with changes in temperature, changes in air quality, all these things. It is a moving target for sure. It is a very dynamic process. And it's something that does keep people on their toes because uh, although it can feel unpredictable, uh, it certainly could be very, very influential in how people are going to react and how organizations should anticipate and try to you know, effectively respond. Well, there's a tremendous amount to dig into here, and I'm afraid we can only just touch the surface. So as we wrap up, do you have any resources that you can recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about how behavioral science impacts workplace safety? There is a good body of research for anyone who goes out to SAMHSA.gov, and SAMHSA is S-A-M-H-S-A. That's our Federal Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, uh, part of federal HHS, and specifically on what is known as the DTAC, or Disaster Technical Assistance Center, because where they publish a lot of really accessible information in the form of fact sheets or brochures that you can use with a workforce, they're very targeted, which is to talk about how do we help people after a flood? How do we help people after a wildfire? How do I speak to my employees? How do I speak to children around a range of different events? So one of the primary ones I think about in the behavioral domain are really the resources that are available from our federal partners at SAMHSA and also through the APA, the American Psychological Association. And again, a trip to their website and looking at the resources tab will give you access to a lot of really accessible information that you can use to really help fortify your policies, plans, and procedures. But also that day when maybe you had an adverse event and you think, boy, I really want to put something in everyone's hands to take home and put on their refrigerator with a magnet to remind them about how to understand the reactions and how to care for themselves and others as they're having reactions to some sort of incident in the workplace or the community. So they're out there and they're usually from really credible governmental and academic sources. Like anything else, 
It's all about preparedness. If you could find some of these resources before a crisis, if you could build a bit of a shelf kit for yourself and organization to have some of these things saved and ready to maybe print or, or email to people in the wake of a crisis, it's going to put you way ahead of the curve when you actually have an event rather than, of course, the tendency for the emotional impact or behavioral impact to be an afterthought. Well, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's such an important topic, and I like how you said that this really needs to be part of your culture, and it's important to lead with empathy, and those two things can make a massive difference downstream. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share some of these ideas. You bet. To learn more about Steve and his work with behavioral science applications, click the links in the show notes. Tune in next week for more expert advice to help you protect your business and people. For video highlights from today's episode, just search for Alert Media on YouTube. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.